Hello, everyone, and welcome to What's Wrong with the Podcast. Today, we have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Rishi Manchanda. Rishi is a physician, author, and healthcare leader who has spent more than a decade developing novel strategies to improve health in resource poor communities. He has served as Director of Social Medicine for a network of community health centers in South Central Los Angeles, as the lead primary care physician for homeless veterans at the Greater Los Angeles VA, and as Chief Medical Officer for a self-insured employer with a large rural immigrant workforce. In his 2013 TED book, The Upstream Doctors, and 2014 TED Talk, he introduced readers and viewers to the Upstreamists, a new model of healthcare workers who improve care by addressing patients' health-related social needs, such as food, financial, and housing insecurity. The talk has been viewed nearly two million times, and the book has become a recommended reading in medical schools and universities across the world. everyone. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Rishi Manchanda. Rishi is a physician, author, and he's CEO of Health Begins. Rishi, welcome. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. So please tell us more about yourself and your background. So I am a primary care and public health trained physician. Um, I went into the field of medicine specifically with a strong passion um, and exposure early on in my career to social medicine. Social medicine, for those who don't know, um, is a very strong discipline, a tradition that's been around for um, almost 200 years um, as part of Western medicine. Um, and it's, uh, it's had a lot of stalwart leaders um, you know, of this, this discipline. For example, Paul Farmer is a name that some people know about, uh, the co-founder of Partners in Health, a physician uh, does a lot of work in Haiti. Uh, social medicine um, is uh, a field that specifically looks at the needs of individual patients and how to provide the best standard of care. And as part of that understands that we can only do so, only provide that best standard of care if we understand not just the biological issues with a person or the psychological kind of needs or issues with a person, but also the social um, conditions of a person and beyond just the needs of an individual person or a patient um, on a social level, what, what's our understanding of how the social context of a person's life, of a community's life, influences health outcomes. And so social medicine uh, deals with understanding how to address the social and the structural drivers of health or of health equity um, in the lives of patients and communities. I got exposed to this early on in my career and that's what I've devoted myself to my entire life. That's amazing. It makes me think of, um, so I also am big on Eastern medicine and I always like feel a drastic difference between let's say two appointments, right? So if I mm -hmm. go and get an acupuncture session, it's like two hours, you talk everything about like what I have been doing, yeah. daily habits and you know everything, looking mm -hmm. at my tongue and from that they can tell so many things as you may know. And then when you go to Western medicine appointment, it's like 10 minutes, I get prescribed so many things. I don't even know if they like know if, I, if I'm allergic, if I have side effects, you know, like mm -hmm. in and out, right? Yeah. And yeah. that like sharp comparison to me always, um, you know, uh, feels, you know, there's something off about this, but it's interesting kind of like hearing about social medicine, how it might sit in the middle um, of like having a more holistic understanding of a person. Um, versus just, you know, a symptom uh, treatment uh, of a person. 
Yeah, I think it, it. I think that's right, and I think that there's a couple of important dimensions though that that are worth unpacking. So some people may be familiar with fields like functional medicine or lifestyle medicine or you know, integrative medicine. These are emerging disciplines. Some have been around a little bit longer than others. Uh, there's still a lot of things at the frontiers or the edges and the margins of it that are um, being figured out. And some people are pushing them in ways that are unethical and unscientific and not helpful to people's real health. But um, but for the most part, integrative medicine and functional medicine and um, uh, you know other forms of holistic kind of medicine are in some ways necessary and, and a regrounding in what we've known in many traditions of health and healthcare for a long time, for centuries um, and across the world. Uh, the, some of the, the original, um, you know, I think it was Aristotle actually who kind of described uh, the need to look at health in its totality and to address the food in the air uh, when, when he was describing some of the ills that were plaguing his, his peers um, in uh, ancient Greece. So, you know, we've, every culture is that understanding that we need to understand the full context of people's lives. What's interesting is that Western medicine, especially the kind of experience you were describing, has been defined um, in that way largely because of the social and economic drivers that have shaped the delivery of healthcare in the US, right? And these are not unique to the US. This is true of parts of Europe and in many other parts of the world, including in India and other parts where people just come in for a pillow procedure and assume that's what health and healthcare is about. And the danger with that, and this is again, I think a global challenge, is that um, we, and this is a challenge also for even functional or holistic kind of medicine approaches, is that we remove the ability to understand the social and the structural context of people's lives. So I'm very, I'm very clear that social medicine is, um, it is holistic in one sense, but it's not the same kind of holistic that we think about when we talk about an Ayurvedic approach um, in for an individual patient. For example, um, uh, one way I think about this is thinking about the need for many holistic medicine traditions to go horizontal. You know, they expand the aperture mm. of what we consider to be diagnostic and therapeutic modalities, right, to help people. So uh, many times, my wife is a physician herself, and she's an integrated medicine physician, and so she has many patients who are just not getting answers, not getting any therapeutic benefit in going to traditional Western medicine approaches because of the reasons you mentioned, like they may have ten minutes to talk to a doctor and they bounce back yeah. and forth and. And if they have a complex problem, a complex problem that's not easily diagnosed or addressed with a pill or a procedure, then uh, they end up getting frustrated. And then so they come into holistic medicine practices or integrated medicine practices to get a broader sense, a horizontal kind of expanding of like, oh, well, maybe there's other things that we should consider here to go spend a bit more time and go deeper into nutrition and um, you know exposures that you've had over your life to various toxins and all sorts of things. Mm. That's good. I, it's necessary, but as I'm about to say, it's not sufficient. <laughs> what I'm right. social medicine is is more of a vertical approach, meaning let's look at um, this kind of tip of the iceberg. Let's look at this person's experience, or let's look at even a community's experience. And community experiences are not often community health is not something that you think about in holistic medicine approaches, right? It's very much about how can this person serve you or me. Yeah. But social medicine says, well, let's look at individual and community kind of phenomenon of health, you know, as it manifests in diabetes or headaches or whatever the symptoms are. And now let's start doing a root cause analysis. Hmm. Not just for that person, but at a social and structural level. So I'll give an example. There are many um, diabetic adults around the world, in, including in the U.S., who are admitted 
uh, to the hospital at the end of each month at, at almost a 30% higher rate than other diabetic adults. And the difference uh, largely at a first glance is income level. Lower income diabetic adults end up getting hospitalized more often at the end of the month compared to higher income diabetic adults. Why is that? Is that to do anything with Ayurvedic approaches or traditional allopathic approaches or homeopathic approaches, whatever, osteopathic approaches? No, it has to do with the fact that um, that person in the US in particular is less likely to have enough money to make ends meet at the end of the month when the paycheck runs out. And so they spend all their money taking care of themselves, their loved ones, paying for the rent, utilities, food, or, and feeding their kids, feeding their elderly parents. And then they take the medications, the blood sugar lowering medications that um, doctors prescribe, but they don't have any food to feed themselves. And so without any food in their stomachs, with, as they take the medication as prescribed to lower the blood sugar, their blood sugar plummets and they get hospitalized for it. This is happening at a huge rate across the country right now, 30% higher risk of being hospitalized at the end of the month. And why is that? It's because of social factors and structural factors. That person is food insecure. That's a household individual phenomenon. Yeah. The community they live in, um, they may live in a food desert, right? Which makes it harder for them to access food in the first place, healthy food yeah. in an affordable way. And then that food desert is there, at least in the US, not by accident, but because of structural racism, um, historic choices made over decades, including recent years, that dictate where some supermarkets are going to be and some supermarkets are not. Redlining, right? Right. So in other words, a social medicine approach is, is distinct and complementary, I think, in some ways um, at the intersection of, you know, if you're an individual person thinking, about, what does this mean? Well, when you're sick, holistic medicine approaches sometimes can be helpful when traditional Western medicine can't help for you individually. Right. But when we look about your neighbor and your family and your other neighbor, and then zoom out to your neighborhood and then to your county or your community and then to the health of a nation, right? Right. At each level, it's not sufficient just to look at pills and procedures or to look at, you know, we, we need to be able to go deeper. And this is the vertical approach. Social medicine is about going deeper into the why. Why is this happening? And let's understand, the only way to understand that is to do a social and structural analysis of it. And then more importantly, not just to analyze it, but to do something about it. That's what, that's what I'm curious about. Right. And this yeah. super helpful. And also like talking about, um, I guess, you know, not the problems we see, but why we see them. This mm -hmm. seems to be like the only way to go. I mean, when we, how you mentioned about integrative or holistic medicine, um, it can sort of help you, the individual itself and like all the range of things you can try to find the cause of the problem and maybe solve it for yourself, right? right. But there is, in addition to that, even like with the individual themselves, there are many other question marks. Like, do they have access to those things? And from that also, when you zoom out even further, there is um, things that are not in their control also that might affect. And in addition to like socioeconomic status you're talking about, I could definitely see like so many cultural habits and behaviors um, that, that you see more common in those like neighborhoods could also impact uh, so much of the behavior. Um, and things that are totally unrelated to like, or seems like that's unrelated to healthcare, right? Like I could see, um, 
single mom with no childcare support, also not getting enough nutrition, nor has the time or energy to think about what nutrition diversity I should have in a day and really uh, just making the ends meet, but also neglecting themselves for many other reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's very interesting to really be able to zoom in on the person's life and their own experience to be able to understand what is the root problem here that is causing the symptom Mm -hmm. uh, of a body but also what are some uh, community or societal trends that we're seeing that also add to this problem. Mm. And if anything, I see this as like a more, maybe a solution in the short term, but also as in the long term, right? To be able to even guide politicians on what type of decisions they're gonna make. Yeah, that's precisely right, yeah. And uh, there's a couple of really, really interesting things I wanna kind of double click on there, Pinaro, but we mentioned. One of them is um, one of the one of the challenges. One of the reasons that um, this is such an important um, discipline and important approach to take. This idea of understanding the social and the structural drivers of problems, or in this case, in my field, health equity. Health, you know, why some people are sicker than others, why yeah. individuals, you know, experience worse outcomes than others, um, why some people don't have the opportunities for health compared to others. The reason this is so important is because we're the, one of the problems we have right now is the fact that we are limited in our paradigm. Uh, our worldview right now is seems like we're all very, very kind of put together and 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 understand you know critically how to analyze problems of you know what's being problems. But it turns out it's incomplete. Let me give you an example. Um, this is true across all disciplines of medicine, so it's not. This is something I, I see is. Uh, and all other sectors as well. But you, you've heard the the adage, um, if you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day and you teach a man a fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. Yeah. That adage is so commonplace right now and it, because it resonates with a deep understanding of behavior, right? Like if I have the skills and the knowledge to fish, then that changes my life. Don't just give me a fish, teach me how to fish and that's it. It yeah. reinforces an understanding that opportunity, that health, that success, that, you know, life itself and liberty, right? You know, all these things that we value and cherish um, are dependent upon behavior. I'm going to challenge that adage and say, again, let's, let's now prior from a social and structural analysis and realize the paradigm shift required. So I'm going to say the adage again, and it's going to provoke a couple of things. You have a man of fish, he eats for a day. He's a man of fish, he eats for a lifetime. But why not teach a woman to fish? Mm-hmm. What if the pond uh, close to his home where he fishes is polluted because of a factory um, close by? What if the access to the permits and the rods and the tackle that he needs to fish have been historically denied to him and to his family or to her and her family because of racism or because of other issues? When we actually look at the science um, from social sciences, from political science, and especially from healthcare and public health science, right? The resounding kind of data, um, you know, the implications of the data and the research tells us over decades, over the past 30 years, that it's the social and the structural factors that play a disproportionate role in impacting the health outcomes of individuals and including shaping behaviors. An example I often give, so this is where the adage becomes helpful, like, you know, why not look about the social context of that man's life or think about a woman or think about these other factors, right? We're so common, we're so kind of um, comfortable with this, this idea of behavior being the primary lever by which health is improved. Um, and which means the opposite, 
is also true. We are relatively unsophisticated in thinking about the social and the structural kind of levers. And the science tells us actually that the social and the structural drivers of health have more than five or almost six times more impact on literally how long we live and how healthy we are compared to behavior and compared to genetics. Another illustrative example I give is imagine, you know, back in the pre-pandemic days when we would get together in conference rooms, right? Um, let's say that, uh, you know, there's a, people enter a room to hear a talk or presentation, go to a meeting, or let's imagine a meeting like in a, in a conference table with like 12 chairs around it and 12 people show up. Um, some have had a bad day. Some have been eating less healthy the night before. Some, you know, drinking like four cups of coffee like I am. There's, you know, everybody has different behaviors. Yeah. Um, and so everybody believes in what, walk into the room that they have free will, that, you know, they're operating their lives right there in that meeting or are dictated by their choices, their behaviors. Now let's take those people out of the room and put them back in. But in this case, first um, slant the floor so that the chairs, the rolling chairs always pull down backwards. And um, some chairs are fixed, so they will never kind of go down. And some chairs are rolling, so they'll just go down. Let's also take out 10 of the 12 chairs. So there's only two chairs left in the room. One chair is rolling and the other chair is fixed. And the same 12 people go back in the room. How will they behave differently? They will, right? Yeah. This, the, the setting of that room changes the behaviors. So we are not creatures of habit. We're creatures of the environment, right? We are mm. social creatures. Um, our habits are shaped by the environment. The choices I make in terms of, you know, drinking this cup of coffee is influenced by whether I have the ability to purchase coffee, right? Have the time to be able to right. make it myself or to, I mean, all those other issues. The fact that we're talking together on Zoom or people are listening to this podcast right now, the choice you made to do this, yes, it's free will, but that free will is shaped by the context of our lives yes. and the context of our societies. Give man a fish, teach man a fish, sure. But the problem with that is that it reinforces this kind of myopic view of what the primary levers of outcomes are when it comes to health and opportunity and justice. The primary outcomes that the data tells us again and again, and again, these examples I'm providing are hopefully illustrative. It turns out social and structural factors play more than five or six times the impact. So literally where you live, where you eat, where you sleep, where you work, and the structural policies that um, have been put in, the structures and the policies that have been put in place to determine the likelihood of where you're gonna live, eat, sleep, work and play, and whether you're gonna have access to healthy things while you eat, sleep, learn and play, all those things are, have far more impact on literally your behaviors and your life than the genes that you were born with. Right. And right. the behaviors that you, that you think that you're making without any kind of context. We are not, you know, we are not some, um, some these beings who live outside of the earth or outside of above the earth. We're not, you know, that uh, we haven't evolved to some sort of transcendent state where we can say we're human beings are now masters of all things and therefore not impacted by our environment. Just like your pets, just like your kids, just like your yeah, family yeah, and just yeah. like humanity forever. We're always shaped by the social and structural context. And so a social and structural analysis requires us to challenge the paradigm. And when we do that, things unlock. So for example, instead of just pills and procedures, we should be asking yourself about access to a park. Yeah. Right. And expect of our health systems, not just healthcare, but also public health systems to, and policymakers, and to exactly to your point, politicians driven by us, right? Um, to be able to demand that people have just as much access to pills and procedures as they do to parks and to other um, 
social and structural kind of opportunities that provide them with the ability to live healthy, productive, full lives. We need to start to really look at the up, these are the upstream factors I call them. And that's, that's the work of my life and the work of many people who, at least in healthcare, look at social medicine, but it's not, you know, it's, it's social medicine and healthcare. It's, it's, um, uh, there are other analogs in other fields and law and in uh, public policy and in social sciences and political sciences as well, this ability to look at the root yeah. causes or the social and structural causes. This that makes sense. Yeah. So fascinating. I love the analogies and it makes me like think of how like we, we, we act on our assumptions and just things that, you know, we, we take for granted and yeah. they, they shape everything. And to your point, even like idioms and sayings for like many, many years, um, they, they probably all need some update to it. Right. And also totally. what you said in terms of like how our environments shape our behavior, like we're very big on inclusive design and it's the fact that, you know, like adding on to like what you were saying there, that the fact that you can also like drink maybe four cups uh, of coffee a day is also because you can hold that mug to drink, you know, like yeah. Yeah. and there is, um, so exactly. we see like what you're saying in like product landscape and built environment too. You know, exactly. the redlining you were talking about, uh, that's built in into the built environment by making them inaccessible in so many ways or yeah. um, the materials you use in construction and how that impacts health. Yeah. So I like, I'm having kind of like a aha moment almost where like I see social medicine experts really have to be um, consulting and collaborating with all different disciplines. Like initially my thought was like, okay, this could be super helpful for policymakers because you can go to the root of the problem, but also for architects, for um, yeah. uh, consumer goods brands. Like they, people, if they really want to create yeah. an inclusive environment or inclusive like global landscape in every yeah. sense of the, uh, of the yeah. way, Yep. All sectors really have to have a deep understanding of how their own sector impacts uh, human and environmental health, really. Um, yeah. And I'm almost like mind blown now. How is this not common practice in every well, in every industry? Also, well, I think there's two things about this. One, you know, I, I, it's social medicine is just a particular lens that I take because of my expertise and you know work in healthcare and in medicine, right? And so, as I said, there are analogs and there's plenty of you know, public health, and even in healthcare, there's public health and preventative medicine traditions that are deep that include, um, but are not limited to social medicine expertise. Uh, but we, we see similar kinds of approaches, and as I said, in law and public policy, or another, you know, in education. You know, there there's folks who have decided to look at the root cause, apply a social and structural analysis to education, and ask themselves, well, what are the social and structural drivers of education outcomes or education equity? Mm or social and structural drivers of equity and um, better outcomes for um, the justice system, right? Every sector has, um, you know, stalwarts who have long been in vanguard kind of leaders and for oftentimes for decades who've been kind of talking about this. They use different jargon and language for it and, you know, a very deep expertise representing the specialization, yeah. right, for those fields. But there is a commonality that I see at least across kindred spirits in these other sectors. and. In part, that's part of the work of doing, you know, doing the social medicine work. I, I will say that I'm going to pivot now and, and um, say instead of social medicine because of the 
it, all the complexities we're talking about, what I have been doing in my career is just saying, well, this is what it means to move upstream. So I call myself an upstreamist because mm. moving upstream means you're looking constantly at the kind of the underlying causes. And I find kindred spirits, other upstreamists, if you will, in other sectors um, for a long time. And so I think we're all out there um, bringing this analysis. And many times we're talking to each other across sectors because we recognize that it takes a multi-sector approach. The other quick point is um, the built environment point. You know, amen, my dad is an architect. And so when I you know, learned about Sauer and the work you do, and especially the design thinking about the built environment, uh, it resonates deeply. And I 100% agree that as, as I'm sure a lot of your you know, listeners do, the built environment shapes behaviors and shapes, including health, you know, the opportunities for health, living, living healthily, and has a lot of implications for equity, as you said, for whether it's uh, disabilities or you know, differently abled people or um, hopefully appropriate um, you know, uh, environments. The thing I wanted to kind of um, take with the built environment is to kind of turn it around a little bit on its axis and look at the other side of it, which is the other part of the environment, the, the, the same kind of set, set of edifices that exist that are unseen, but deeply kind of structural, just as much the, as the, the rebar in the building that you're sitting in right now. Is. And that's, those, are the, those are the policies, right? And yeah. so there's no doubt that, as I mentioned earlier, redlining in the US, which was a policy um, that was an extension of very racist policies for many years, but was born just a, less than a century ago, right, in the US, a policy codified in federal law to be able to literally uh, allow banks and other lending institutions to dictate where people of color, Black people in particular, could live or could not live. And then everything else kind of spilled from there. Um, and uh, we still see the residual impact of redlining today, including you know, distribution of good schools, supermarkets, housing, affordable housing. I mean, all, all these things are, we're still seeing right now, such that in the US in particular, literally your zip code is more important than your genetic code in dictating how long you live, right? Hmm. And that's because of the built environment of the people's homes themselves, you know, whether they're more likely to have you know, holes and peeling paint in the walls or you know, lead um, issues or, you know, um, vermin infestations or water leaks yeah. or mold. I mean, all those things in that built environment. But there's also the, the unseen built environment of policy, right? That yeah. means that as soon as they leave their home, again, likely to be more unsafe, more unhealthy. They're also coming across the brick walls, the edifices of yeah. racist policies, of things that make it harder for them to get, to get jobs, to, to eat healthy. Yeah. My entire career as a physician has been spent not talking about this stuff, but taking care of patients, right? With this understanding and developing a set of strategies to be able to take care of patients in communities. And what I've seen taking care of patients from South Central Los Angeles to homeless veterans at the VA to farm workers in the Central Valley of California, where I've had the privilege of being a caregiver along with my colleagues. I will tell you that the folks that I've talked about who, who are the least resourced are working 10 times harder than many of us who are more privileged in order, because they're hitting more walls in their lives, right, yeah. every day, seeing, you know, the built environment and the unseen kind of edifices of structural, of, of um, unhealthy structures, right, are just as yeah. important. So, so both are important in thinking from a design perspective and from an architectural, you know, architectural perspective of the, the, the positive, the space and the negative space, right, and the negative space is occupied by policy edifices, policies that literally, you know, sometimes trap people in to, and make them work 10 times harder just to be able to kind of get a get by or get a living. That's the nature yeah. of the lives I've seen right now. And I just want to underscore the 
that there's the built environment, absolutely, and then there's the policy environment. And that, right. that those kind structures, of... right, those structures are just as kind of impactful on people's health as anything. And so a lot of what we do in moving upstream is thinking about how to um, improve both. Yeah, because to all your, like what you've just said, um, and it's so true about how the financial world, the banks, the lenders, like they have so much control over um, what's being put out there in terms of whether that's like a built environment product or even like when we look at companies, you know, that are controlled by either shareholder profit and really like trying to aim for that or um, mm -hmm. venture capital money. Mm -hmm. um, people who really have, I don't want to say people, I would say institutions that really have maybe zero insight into yeah. uh, a certain field or zero expertise around that field uh, kind of frame and shape how things will go about. And that, that's one direction. And then policy that is potentially more informed and there's more collaboration uh, and cross-pollination between different disciplines and uh, expertise, it lags. Uh, right. So we see like one end being a total outside. And this is a conversation, of course, we often have with like developers, right, in the built environment. So, of course, there are developers who only care about profits that so they would put out profit products, um, built environment yeah. products that will fit that. Or there are developers who want to do something different, but either they're very restricted by zoning requirements. So that's what where we're talking about, like the invisible um, yeah. built environment or, or banks. And they need to really create something cookie cutter to get the financial backing. Mm -hmm. And I think last year was a very interesting case example on how at least the policy lag piece uh, can really just shift. And we, we were experiencing, well, still are experiencing a global health crisis. And suddenly we see so much like funding and backing for private companies and institutions in order to be really fast at furthering mm -hmm. research in a field. We see um, treatment subsidization, right? Like we see monetary incentive to receive vaccination. Um, and like, does it really have to take a global crisis to be able to get to that point? And if we assume um, policy will always lag, Mm -hmm. What can happen, similar to like your efforts at like health against too, what can happen more on the bottom up push end yes. that right. could really uh, force change? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a good segue maybe to the solutions, like, you know, what we're trying to push for right now. What, there's, um, I'll kind of describe health begins work and, and yeah. situate it within the kind of the multiple levels of opportunity or, or action that I think are, that are important here, um, including what you talk about. There's there's macro policy work, right? There's macro change. There's, and that's exactly the kind of um, uh, where I would bucket many of the, the the interventions, the policy interventions that you described. And you're exactly right. You know, I think the last year and a half showed us that if we must, then we do invest, okay. <laughs> right, in um, in things that are uh, that elevate the common good. Um, vaccine production is one of them, but it also reveals at the macro level the deep inequities. I mean, even to this point with a global health crisis you know, we're still not seeing a global health response. Uh, we're seeing, in fact, if anything, richer countries, including US, hoarding yep. vaccines and hoarding the technology to produce the yep. life-saving interventions. And so inequity exists even at the macro level. And to your point, it's also worth noting that in the global health crisis at that macro level, 
the generally the societies that have had a long tradition of um, investing in the social commons, right? The public health infrastructure, the uh, civic infrastructure, um, and had a, a deep longstanding kind of um, sense of commitment to a, a notion of health as a public good and not just as a personal, you know, commodity. Yeah. Yeah. Were the were the places that fared better, and that's just not that, that's not only like you know some parts of the world that we've heard about in the press, like um, the Taiwan and South Korea's early on that had powerful responses with technology and stuff. It also includes places like the southwest of India, a place called Kerala, that for, for a while in you know um, in a very very complex and um, challenging environment, both politically and economically in India, this this state fared way better because they've had a long tradition going back decades of investing in public health infrastructure and education infrastructure. So we're seeing those places, uh, we're seeing people invest now, but we're, we need to invest even more in the common shared infrastructure of public health and education. Um, another thing that we need you know, to be able to see public returns, but those are all macro things. I, health Begins is um, works at the uh, there's micro things as well. I'll kind of get to help again. So I was going to pivot. So macro, and then there's micro, like you know, interventions for individual people, uh, in developing programs, innovations, new technology that kind of helps individual people kind of do things differently. All of that is vital. We're seeing a lot of examples of that as well. And then to your point earlier, Pinar, there's there's institutions. How do how do we as individual people right um, drive change? Well, A, it's through influencing the macro through voting and other move, social movements. And that's what this last year and a half has also demonstrated, right? That's social movements are not just fly-by-night things or things that you know we read about in history books. They are vital, yeah. vital levers of power to be able to hold you know, um, ourselves as society accountable, our governments especially. Social movements are, are vital. We need to think about how to invest in them. But there's also another vehicle that we have as individuals for collective action, and that's institutional change. The institutions we operate in, right? The hospitals, the the companies we work in, the businesses we operate in, all of these are institutions where we individually come together to agree about a collective way of doing X, achieving a profit, you know, achieving impact, whatever. And I think the work of Health Begins is about helping the upstreamists, those kind of change agents, right, with this to understand the social and structural um, drivers of health equity. So, you know, unlocking that kind of thinking that we talked about at the top. And then translating that thinking along with a set of specific skills to be able to drive institutional change. How does the, especially in healthcare and among community organizations, we help we help those partners, those institutional partners, leaders within them, to transform their institutional practices to be able to better address the social and the structural drivers of health equity. To be able to better screen, for example, like food insecurity among people who are um, yeah. who have that problem, and that's obviously been. It was important pre-pandemic, but even more evident now. Uh, but not just to stop there, but to say, well, how do we as an institution now play a role in addressing and removing the food desert, right? That is right. impacting that. And then how do we as an institution now support changes to dismantle the structurally racist issues or other structural determinants that put that food desert in the first place? A lot of what we do is to help institutions provide, we do strategy consulting um, to help individual institutions as well as collectives of institutions, largely again, the public health and healthcare space uh, to come together and find new ways of leading, partnering and supporting efforts to address the social and structural drivers of health and equity. Uh, we also do a lot of work in training and education. We're the premier education provider for 
um, or the upstream movement, as we call it, you know, meaning helping professionals both in healthcare and in other community sectors learn how to learn the skills necessary to drive that transformation. So we do a lot of training and education work. And the last thing we do um, is some direct programs ourselves. So we, we've had a model called Community Health Detailing, which is a training program that um, has helped um, a network of community-based organizations like the YMCA of USA, for example, one of the nation's largest nonprofits. They've been using this method of community health detailing, uh, which essentially takes a technique that the pharmaceutical industry used for a while to detail doctors mm -hmm. to change prescribing behavior. We turned it around on its head and essentially had community-based organizations and people with lived experience, especially from marginalized communities, be the ones who detail doctors, clinics, but other community organizations as well to be able to better address social needs and also drive uh, referrals to evidence-based interventions. So um, we've seen um, through this program uh, almost 50% increase within a short amount of time for the number of people from marginalized communities who are getting connected to evidence-based interventions like diabetes prevention programs or food programs yeah. or other services. And it's kind of a last mile approach that we found to be really powerful by, because we tap into the power of community itself. We don't see community as beneficiaries only, but we also see them as drivers of. So yeah. Health Begins is a, is a meso and work. We, we influence the macro by, by building the capacity of leaders and institutions to address the social structure drivers to transform their institutions. Well, I think, I mean, it is so crucial in your work, like associating with many other maybe community-based organizations, right? So like community, well, there is number one, um, there we have like the problem of maybe education and awareness about something, right? But communities do have like more and more awareness and education over time about their health and want, do want access to or try to do the right thing. So it's not always just like an awareness thing where sometimes that's how it's like positioned so that, you know, it's not nobody, it's not anybody's fault. Um, but then once there's that awareness, who kind of advocates for them because their voices are usually not heard. Um, so there, there are like many community-based organizations come into play, but also there has to be these like organizations or more like leaner um, companies uh, that can be very agile and really adapt to a community's need and communicate to that to the right institution or policymaker uh, in a more organized manner to be able mm -hmm. to derive a solution from there. And I'm seeing the value, and this is like more and more we see this like large corporations and institutions collaborating with smaller um, entities or units and CBOs to yeah. be able to either really go to the root of the problem um, or just be able to act because so many institutions just are so lost in the process that they really fail in execution or reaching a solution um, and they really need a more agile unit almost like an incubator to be mm -hmm. able to like run with it and come up with the solution. Um, and, and I don't know, and maybe this is like an interesting um, silver lining from like since like last year, we are at least like in our field seeing this a bit more. Um, and I think, you know, inclusive, inclusive design, um, whether that's for inclusive uh, system design or product design, um, this is something we've talk, been talking about since like when we founded, but what we see is there is, more and more genuine interest, not marketing wash, um, genuine interest from private institutions in trying to uh, make it more 
make things more human-centered or community-centered. Have you see, have you been seeing this shift a bit more? And yours is very interesting because like we're having a health crisis, right? Um, and you're like, you're in the health space already. Have you seen a much more um, like, I guess, faster response or interest or wider interest in like uh, what you're suggesting as the way to go about? Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing it on a lot of different levels. And I think my, my um, so we're seeing a lot of organizations, like I said, big private institutions, businesses, um, take an interest in partnering with community organizations to be able to address issues of equity, for example, or racial equity, um, as you saw. But exactly to your point, you know, the big, um, that happened, not because of enlightened leadership, you know, um, but because of social movements. Yeah. Public pressure. And I think it's a really important point because um, institutions and movements have often, oftentimes institutions are the target of movements, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, because institutions have not been at the front. It's what's required now for institutional leaders, business leaders, leaders of hospitals, of healthcare systems, leaders of educational institutions, academic universities. The question is, if you're a leader, a professional leader of an institution, or you're you know somewhere in the management structure of an organization, or you're a frontline worker in that institution, what is your role in being able to understand, listen to, and then support movement? Yeah, and not be not wait for movements to kind of force you to kind of do something about it. And also, lastly, how are you held accountable? Um, right. Right now, we have too many, here's some critiques now, the, the kind of provocative issues, right, that I want to put on the table. Yes, we're seeing a lot more institutions kind of play a role in reaching out to organizations and the community and also at least saying that they're committed to the movement for racial yeah. justice, for example. But... <laughs> Um, many of them are saying it without any real commitment of resources, without any yeah. kind of reimagining re of internal structures. And by reinforcing the, the idea, if you strip away all the bells and whistles and the corporate social responsibility marketing stuff that's out there, they're, without any, uh, they're reinforcing this idea that, oh, we are smart enough to be able to hold ourselves accountable. And you as a consumer of our products should trust us to do that. Well, that didn't work. It doesn't work for any sector, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Um, accountability is not like, oh, I hold myself accountable. Accountability requires exchange between actors, yeah. right? And somebody holds somebody else accountable or society holds us accountable. So it's time for institutional leaders to understand what institutional accountability really means as right. part of their mantle of leadership and then to think about ways to support because it turns yeah. out actually the more accountability leads to better outcomes, even though it also comes with more headaches for institutional leaders. But guess what? That's part of the job, <laughs> right? You're getting yeah, paid yeah. those dollars to kind of be held accountable and not to shy away from it. So this is a moment for courageous leaders to decide whether they're going to be that or not, right? To be courageous or not. Either you're going to be a leader who's like, I'm reinforcing and reifying the primacy of my institution, throwing out some kind of partnerships to community-based organizations, but never really challenging the power imbalances, never yeah. questioning the fact that the, the floor in that conference room that I talked about is slanted where I'm sitting in a fixed chair and my community-based organization partner is sitting on a rolling chair just trying to kind of stay at the table, right? Yeah. If I'm, that's the nature of relationships right now. That's the challenge that we have to see that and push institutional leaders on. Like how did they not just partner, but how did they restructure, rebalance the floor itself so that there's equitable partnerships. And a lot of what we've been doing is supporting community-based organizations to be able to better and more effectively and equitably partner and that requires both capacity building community-based organizations to 
um, that's absolutely necessary, while also uh, challenging and supporting, right? Tough love kind of approach to our institutional yeah. partners. It's still a miracle that we get paid to do this work because we often provoke <laughs> our, our clients to say, look, like you, you're partnering with this organization, but are you, you're not really helping um, them really succeed. That's not in your self-interest. Yeah. So, you know, how do you start to reorganize yourselves internally to be able to support true equitable partnership rather than just lip service? Um, yeah. So, yeah, amen to your point. I think there's a lot more work happening these days, but, you know, the proof is always in the pudding and we are, we are pudding makers. Exactly. And just because there's progress doesn't mean we, we stop there. Just because there's representation doesn't mean that's diversity. You know, I think there's like a still a lot way to go in so many ways. And what to your exactly to your point last year, we saw a lot of like, we heard you and we're acting on it. That's not good enough. We need to have a much more collaborative and co-creative understanding almost and treat people, uh, end users, partners, like actual partners mm -hmm. um, in order to really be able to come to a solution. And in addition to, um, I guess like I have great faith in um, new like Gen Z and onwards too on like, um, maybe sometimes call out culture can be toxic, but in social movements actually, uh, and we saw like for many of its places, social media really be able to support mm -hmm. uh, in this as well. Um, and really holding companies and brands and institutions accountable um, through following through, right? right. And right. I think that that is something also uh, newer generations are really like enforcing mm -hmm. brands. And I, I'm really hopeful to see that taking shape as like not as um, people just making right. statements or right. companies just making statements, but really having to walk the walk. Yeah. Um, and with like organizations like yours, how to go about it and have much better understanding on how to do that, that education is still very much is needed and um, everybody should be aware of. Yeah, we, last kind of good point just in responses. You know, we think a lot about obviously structures, right? And um, as we said, movements clearly um, have driven a lot of accountability, but movements um, are many times, so rights movement did the same thing as what we're seeing with BLM and other movements. Movements um, are often demand structural changes so that movements aren't always required to be able to create the structures of accountability for institutions. Right. And right. so a lot of what we do is think about the structures, structures of accountability. And so yes, social media, social movement, like the public pressure is necessary, but there's then the question of, okay, so how does that wind create the sales? What are the sales that it's pushing against in terms of accountability systems? There are five components of accountability that we've mapped that based on you know, the literature and about institutional accountability that's out there and we've applied it to healthcare, but it's applicable to other sectors. There's community-centered governance mechanisms of accountability. Is the community not just a beneficiary or an advisor, but really uh, involved in governance for an institution or and for, you know, in the community. So gov community-centered governance, and a related point about community-centered monitoring, you know, um, mm -hmm. to what extent are communities monitoring um, institutional efforts. Um, there's mechanisms of um, institutional redress. So how do institutions actually acknowledge um, the role they've played in addressing these things? This is a big thing right now because in the last year we saw a lot of institutions say, for example, racism is a public health crisis in healthcare at least, or racism is a, you know, is a major issue. And that's good, necessary work but very little um, uh, acknowledgement afterwards about you know, any truth, internal truth and reconciliation process to say, well, in our institution has perhaps played a role in at least yeah. ignoring, if not perpetuating 
these things. In healthcare, there's been a reckoning. So institutional redress is required um, to be able to be accountable because institutions can't say, oh, we just kind of arrived at the scene here, <laughs> right? Yeah. The scene yeah. of structural racism. Like institutions are the ways in which structural racism has been implemented. So all, there's a need to have institutional leaders kind of identify ways in which historic practices have been problematic, both for racial equity and other equity issues. Third, fourth, and fifth kind of components are transparency and answerability. To what extent do, do institutions make their data uh, transparently available for public scrutiny? To what extent are they answerable? Do they provide information on the decisions they made or not, you know, about what to do about those? That's transparency and answerability. The next one is um, compliance. You know, are, are there monitoring systems in place so that the institution is, is, can be compliant with whatever the changes are that are required? And the last thing is consequences. What are the consequences, whether it's through enforcement or sanctions or even positive consequences like incentives and rewards, right, that are given to institutions yeah. to hold them accountable? Those are five different key mechanisms of institutional accountability that are so important from an equity perspective right now. And we need to now look at those five components as the, the structures, right, the, at, that the movements, right, are helping to kind of fill up. It's a scaffolding that the energy of the movement now can kind of help to, to fill in so that we can strengthen the accountability system so that we don't always have to march in the streets to be able to demand our institutions to be better. So now we have the structures in place to do that. That's a, that's our high level thought about um, accountability. And we do a lot of work helping institutions and our partners um, use those five components to start thinking about how they can assess their own strengths and how we can help communities strengthen the system's accountability for them. I love this so much because it remind, it's a good reminder to all of us that it's such a, similarly to like collaboration, like I think both terms are used like very loosely and lightly and often that we sometimes forget the depth of what that actually means. So thank you so much for walking through that. I think it's so, so important to know and understand. Um, and I know like, I mean, I, I can ask you questions all day, but we're gonna have to slowly wrap. So my last, I guess, quick question would be, um, and we're seeing this more and more where uh, younger generations are trying to um, do, create more impact in whatever shape or form that may be. Um, so what would be your advice to anyone who wants to get into a field to make progress there and push some boundaries and um, hopefully make change? Um, stay connected and stay and find a mentor. Um, so one of the things that I think is very challenging is being able to keep the, the fire lit um, when, and then to um, learn about ways to use that as, a, as you progress in your career. Um, one of the best kind of accountability tricks or life hacks, right, that's possible there is, as people know, just the circle of contacts and friends and colleagues that you create creates that kind of sense of mutuality and shared mission, right? So stay connected with people who share your mission and together develop it and refine it and hold each other accountable to kind of moving towards it because that'll keep you more accountable to delivering that. I've been fortunate to have an incredible group of friends in various stages of my life who have been there to help me, whether, you know, you know, explicitly or just because of their, who they are and what they mean, how they inspire me, have always said, well, am I, am I keeping the fire lit in the way that would make my friends proud? right make my media friend so keep the fire lit by staying connected and secondly is uh the find a mentor part of it um we are part of a long line of people right who have been thinking about these issues right now and um the the hubris of every generation is that it thinks it's first on the scene <laughs> that 
you know, we're both the beneficiaries of the, or the pinnacle of progress and we now get to reap the rewards of it and, you know, maybe we'll pay it forward. We're, we're just, the reality is we're just holding the baton for this moment, right? We just got the baton. And so the next generation is grabbing the baton and the way to kind of really make sure that they succeed and that we all succeed, right? Is to understand that this is about mentorship and about uh, finding that. So for folks younger in their careers, just starting out thinking about ways to progress, find mentors, um, especially mentors who have a social and a structural analysis, right? Who think about that adage of give a man a fish and teach a man a fish and question it and say, but why not a woman? Why not? What, what if the pond is polluted? Why not? You know, what if he can't get access to the tackle rods and permits? Mentors like that who challenge you to think about the root causes and say, but why, but why, but why, right? Those are mentors you want because you don't want a mentor who is going to reinforce a myopic perspective. You want a mentor um, who is gonna continue to challenge you and who will be open to being challenged as well. This was so, so great. Thank you so much, Rishi. This was such a treat. And any, I guess, updates, things we should know about around Health Begins or yourself that we should be looking forward to? Um, Health Begins, as uh, you know, we're a small but mighty organization, so I'll keep you posted. But the high level is we're, we're recruiting uh, always. So if some people out there are interested in learning more about us, go to www.healthbegins.org and you'll learn about some of the opportunities that we have. Feel free to contact us if you're interested in working with us or partnering with us, and we're happy to connect. But, um, uh, you know, the ability at this point to um, impact the number of, to have the impact that we've had so far has been wonderful, and it's outsized compared to our, you know, we're a small organization, and yet we're able to achieve a lot of influence. So it's been a privilege, and if anybody wants to join and partner or, or work with us, more than welcome it. Wonderful. Thank you so much for making the time. Thanks, Trina. I appreciate it. And that is this week's episode of What's Wrong With The Podcast. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcasting platform. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. Links can be found in the episode description, and you can also find them on our website, podcast.whatswrongwith.xyz. If you found value in the show, we would appreciate if you could rate us and leave a review, or you can simply tell your friends about us. For more details on our guests, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to join us next week. Thank you for listening.